when you tell kids in the developed world that they have to stay home and they can't go to school, they're going to play a lot of video games, probably more than, than usual. So I think that's the, the first component, but you know, certainly not the only component. The other thing that esports has helped to create is not just gaming as the sort of first party consumption of the activity or the experience of gaming, but also the secondary activity of either live streaming or recording and posting that VOD of your gaming session. The question I've been asked by people my age and older for the past 15 years has been, why would anybody want to watch other people play video games? You know, and the answer is, why would anyone want to watch grown men chase a small ball around a perfectly good grass field, right? It's, it's same thing in traditional sports. But the further answer is the, the activity of watching gaming has become, you know, as big as gaming itself. And it's not just esports. Esports is what sort of generated it. But now if you sort of look around the gaming stratosphere, we have not just esports teams and leagues and things like that that sort of mirror the traditional sports world. But you also have what we generally refer to as gaming influencers, which are somewhat similar to sort of what you think of as social media influencers, maybe in the fashion industry or the beauty and cosmetics industry. But these are people who are literally live streaming for hours and hours a day, their gaming sessions. And either they're just really entertaining or they're really good or some mix of the two. And they create communities of fans around them. And that is unique to gaming, I think, that is both a live consumption model and a recorded consumption model. So when you look at all of it, you know, I think in the, in the second week of March, Verizon released a stat that in the U.S., their network usage specific to gaming had increased 75%. So effectively in the first week of the uh, initial kind of quarantining of, or lockdowns in, in some of the first states and cities, gaming was up 75% already just in terms of network usage. The video consumption platforms, specifically YouTube and Twitch, which Twitch is the Amazon owned kind of live streaming gaming component. And I, and I think it's misunderstood that gaming is one of, if not the biggest content formats on all of YouTube globally. So hundreds of millions of people a day consuming gaming content on YouTube. Those two platforms went up significantly too, because not only were lots of young people home from school and work and playing a lot more video games, but they are also consuming video content of other people's sessions of video gaming. Esports is the competitive sort of league and content that sits on top of the gaming industry. And the gaming industry here in 2019 was somewhere between 150 and $170 billion industry. Billions of people are gamers around the world, uh, especially when you consider mobile. But the tier on top of that is essentially esports is really a, you know, it started for many years as a kind of gamer created movement to you know, to sort of formalize a standard of behavior, meaning, you know, typically people, especially in more recent generations, gaming is not what it was when I was a kid in the 80s, which is sort of a solitary thing where you're trying to, you know, almost unlock a puzzle or beat a machine or create a high score. Gaming has mostly been for the past, you know, close to 20 years, a social competitive activity. So whether you're playing you know, words with friends or Candy Crush, or you're playing Call of Duty or Overwatch or Valorant or League of Legends, you're gaming and you're mostly com competing against somebody else. So that social component of it is what then led to formalization of leagues and competitions. You know, kind of started very grassroots when MLG got its start. It grew actually out of South Korea originally in the late 90s and early 2000s. We kind of imported the concept to 
North America and built MLG, which looked a lot like kind of North American sports league. So just in terms of scale, about 10 times the size of the music industry and, and larger than the music industry and the feature film theatrical uh, business combined and doubled. So just in terms of the foundation that esports is built on, it's literally far and away the largest sector of the overall global entertainment industry. Billions of people are gamers around the world, uh, especially when you consider mobile. You know, I always hear from a lot of parents, oh, you know, I hear what you do, but my kid just spends hours in the basement with a headset on all by himself. And I always say, your kid is not all by himself. He's probably talking to 30 different people from around the world. In fact, he's probably got a substantially bigger, you know, network of close associates than you do because you're restricted to your, your home, your work, whatever community organizations you live in real life, your kids who are connected online through gaming have, you know, potentially hundreds of friends that they talk to routinely. It's a bit like sports. There's a sort of relationship to sports or even big sort of franchise entertainment like Star Wars and things like that, where, you know, if you're a fan of Star Wars, you could be anywhere in the world and somebody mentioned some esoteric fact about Star Wars and every other Star Wars fan knows exactly what they're talking about and they want to jump into that. And so, there's a commonality between that type of behavior and gaming. And again, in the COVID scenario, all of that activity has increased dramatically because you know, lots of time was available, but also lots of need for direct personal connection. And if you think about, you know, we, we talked already about how games are effectively becoming you know, social networks in one way. And, and in fact, you know, in, in one case in particular, there are probably a lot of people who are not that into gaming may have heard of is Fortnite, um, a company called Epic. It's a game called Fortnite, which has become, you know, more than just a shooter game. It's become a real social platform. And I think in many cases, probably during the COVID era, the fastest growing social network, they, they actually acquired House Party, which was a, a sort of kind of like Zoom, sort of a multi-video chat social media platform and have started to integrate it into their engine and things like that. But they also just recently hosted a, a concert, Travis Scott, a big hip hop act, actually performed a concert in the game. And they had by their own reports, over 27 million people in the game watching the concert. And a total of, just wanna check the fact, about over 45.8 million people watched between the game and various uh, video platforms again like Twitch and YouTube. One of the most striking things about esports the last few years is the these live events. You talk about Fortnite, I think it may you know entered people's consciousness who aren't into this yet was yeah. the was the event last year, the final in uh, Flushing Meadows. Yeah. Where what the prize pot was what three million dollars or something for, for for winning the final of that game. Yeah. And that was with a huge live audience. Is, can you give us some idea of how important these live events are and you know, what impact the virus has had on those? Sure. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because we, one of our companies, one of the Vindex companies, Next Generation Esports, actually produced that event for Epic. So it was a real groundbreaker in that, you know, one, it, it was a huge, very sort of mainstream game, again, that a lot of people had heard about. One of the unique aspects of that game is that 100 players at a time are playing all against each other. So it's, you know, sort of a 100 battle royale game. So it's a, it's a last man standing thing. Our, our company, NGE, one of our Vindex companies, produced that event with Epic. And, you know, 
huge event, very sort of had a lot of mainstream crossover, right? The, the winner was on all the late night shows and really interesting storyline. Lots of people because of their kids are very familiar with Fortnite. I think that the interesting thing about that is, you know, that game has a hundred people playing at a time. So literally the stage or the playing field was a hundred people on a massive stage in the real world playing against each other in the virtual world. And the complexity of putting on that so that in the, the live audience, you can see what's going on and follow it and it's entertaining, plus creating that as a linear broadcast. There's a lot of complexity and interesting stuff there. The technology that we've created in order to be able to produce something like that has also allowed us in the environment where uh, live events like that, in-person events are not able to exist. It's allowed us to recreate you know, a, a great degree of that level of kind of live event remotely. So obviously you can, you know, when you're in Arthur Ashe Stadium at the Fortnite World Cup playing for $3 million, you're playing exactly the same game on an internet server that you would be playing at home. You know, the reality is because of physics, the, the experience is not exactly the same, um, but it can be pretty close. And most importantly, it can still be very entertaining. But the technology that we've had to create as an industry and as a company over the past several years in order to be able to produce something like that. And just as a quick example, you know, the, the Super Bowl, including the halftime show, which is probably the biggest spectacle in North American sports every year, um, has about, I think, 67, 68 cameras that cover the entire field of play and the events and the concerts and that kind of stuff. Um, the Fortnite World Cup, because there's 100 players and 100 points of view and lots of in-game cameras and all that kind of stuff, it's over 300 individual video inputs which no human could be a single director and kind of call that game, right? There's also no ball to follow. There's a bunch of other complexity. So just as a anecdotal sort of point of evidence, the amount of technology, both software and hardware that goes into producing something like that is at a order of magnitude of complexity over what's done in traditional real world sports. But that infrastructure that we've got also allowed us in the weeks leading up to the shutdowns in California and New York and Ohio where we have offices and studios, it allowed us to pull out a lot of that technology infrastructure, relocate it to actually broadcast engineering and producers' homes. And so we've continued through the crisis to actually be able to remotely broadcast. So competitors, rather than 100 competitors sitting in Arthur Ashe Stadium, they're all over the place, all over the world in some cases, in their homes playing safely in our broadcast team, which typically would be huddled up in a control room in various environments in a live arena, is also sitting at home. You know, so directors, producers, broadcast engineers, IT specialists across the board are sort of all at home in remote environments and able to kind of recreate, again, not, it's never going to be as great as 10,000 people in an arena together, but, you know, it's, we can very closely recreate a lot of that level of excitement and at least broadcast quality, especially what happens in the game. So in a way, you know, certainly everybody would love it if we could go have massive esports events this summer. Seems very unlikely, as it is for the traditional sports world. But esports is able to continue on in a way similar to we were citing before. You know, those of us over forty had to go, you know, hand to hand and recreate social networks to keep in touch with people while we're stuck inside that we would otherwise normally see. Reality is, most active gamers have hundreds of people across their Twitch, YouTube, various games, platforms like Discord where they communicate with each other. The connectivity that they already had was already there. Similarly, the technology and, and ability to remotely broadcast a lot of the competition in esports remains with companies like ours.
there's been some really interesting crossover too. So even, you know, what's happened if you're, if you're a motorsports fan, both Formula One and NASCAR, you know, had to stop racing. We're starting to shut down live events and both turned to effectively sort of iRacing simulators that the drivers often use anyway to sort of practice. Some of the newer, younger drivers use these simulators to practice. They transitioned that into an esports model and basically both Formula One and NASCAR have started moving shifting from actual real world races to having the same drivers drive the simulators and broadcasting that. I've spent 18 years avoiding the question, are, are esports players athletes? Because I grew up a child athlete and I've seen a lot of people become successful as esports players who started out as child athletes in you know, two, three sports. A lot of it is very similar. And actually interesting that we, we started this part of the conversation with racing because oftentimes I've said, Look, is a kid who's great at Overwatch the same level of athlete as, you know, an Olympic sprinter or an NBA player? No. But might they have some of the same sort of physical attributes as a motor, you know, a race car driver or a golfer or, you know, even in some cases, you know, a major league baseball hitter or pitcher where you don't necessarily have to be the picture of, you know, physical health to be a great hitter. In fact, Lots of them are a bit overweight and, you know, not necessarily the fastest runners and things like that. What the physical aspects of what's required to be a really top esports player, a professional, are a lot of the same attributes you think you need to be a great race car driver. Now, the obvious difference is if you screw up in a game of Overwatch, you don't die. Your character does. If you screw up in a Formula One car, you might, right? So... That's, that's obviously a difference, but that doesn't change the physical requirements. It's, it's a different mental and psychological uh, component. But, you know, what, what is really important is amazing, you know, superhuman visual acuity and reaction time and very, very, very discrete mechanical precision um, and hand-eye coordination, right? And this is also one of the ways I've answered for 15 years, what's the difference between esports, but, you know, a gamer and a, and a physical athlete. One of the things that people don't realize is most professional athletes are young people who are highly competitive. Guess what they do when they're not playing soccer or tennis or football or whatever? Most of them are gamers. Um, and they, you know, target out people that travel a lot, have a lot of downtime and a lot of very focused professional time, highly competitive, highly tuned physically. That happens to make them pretty good gamers. And um, a lot of pro athletes you know, right after whatever their sport is, their next thing is they're a gamer. And so you're starting to see that now. And what's happening is a lot of pro athletes who would otherwise be on a physical field of play or at home playing their favorite game and broadcasting it. And so, yeah, I think, I think Serena and, and a couple of other tennis players are doing sort of Wii tennis matches. And, you know, a lot of it's been for charity. We've seen actually um, one of the things that we've produced is matching pro athletes with pro gamers and running tournaments for charity like that. So there's been a lot of that activity recently. Now, the reality is just like you probably wouldn't want to see a top esports player in football, most pro athletes are not esports pro level gamers, but they're pretty good. And so, you know, it can be entertaining and it can be fun to watch. Is our esports going to replace real physical sports? So, you know, I don't know. I, I, there's no flat answer that it's not a yes or no answer it's a it's esports will probably push out some real world sports for sure i think it'll take quite a long time 
And we don't have any real data on that yet, except to look at, again, I think it's a generational divide kind of dynamic. But if you look at the demographics of viewers of traditional sport, and then look at the demographics of people watching gaming and esport, there's, there's almost a 20 year gap in the mean age between those audiences, especially if you look at sports like baseball in the US, some more regional sports where the fan bases are actually quite old. And I think the average age of a major league baseball viewer in the US is over 60 at this point, meaning there's probably not many people in their 20s. And people under 30, especially, generally speaking, have never watched television networks. You know, they're, they're watching Twitch and YouTube and Netflix and things like that, streaming platforms and internet-based video. They're consuming more video than anybody else does, but they're consuming it through different distribution channels. And therefore, there's never the activity of sort of where we, how we grew up, which is sort of scrolling through the channels and you happen across something interesting and you sit and watch a game or scrolling through the channels and you're in the fourth quarter of something and you want to see the end results doesn't happen. There's no discoverability on the internet. You have to find, you have to go find what you're looking for. And that's led, I think, to a pretty dramatic increase in the average or mean age across traditional sports viewership on television. And it's created this whole wide open area because none of that content, because it's locked into primarily linear distribution television deals, none of it appears on the internet. There aren't, there aren't simulcasts on streaming platforms and therefore it created a massive vacuum. So if you can't change, the, if you can't count on the consumer moving from an internet-based video consumption model to a television one specifically to watch a particular sport, then you've left a giant vacuum for somebody to fill in the hole. And that's the hole that esports has filled. And it's been happening for the past 15 years, really more substantially in the last three or four. I'm sure that a lot of people who are sports fans are now watching esports content because they might have never really been a big esports fan before, but they might play one or two of the games and so they can kind of follow along. And with no sport on television, they're gotta do something. And so I'm, I'm sure that that's happening. I'm sure that the overall audience has increased for esport. And I think dependent on how long live traditional sports are shut down, that could certainly have an impact. You know, if you're, if you're talking about missing an entire baseball season in America, if you're talking about not having the second half of the NBA season, no finals and potentially not starting the season again, you know, later this year, I think that you, you might wind up in a situation where enough time goes by without that sport and people start to develop other fan and viewing behaviors and it might gravitate towards eSports. So I think that's a definite possibility. I would say that's not gonna happen at the macro level, right? My, my dad in his 70s is not gonna start watching eSports right now. He's gonna wait for golf to come back. But you know, I, I think that there are critical parts of the younger slice of that demographic group of traditional sports fans who might just start to, might, might have watched a little bit of eSports before, but you know, maybe 80% traditional sport, 20% eSport, and that might shift pretty significantly. And with the size of the global audience that we're talking about, that you know, the small percentage shifts can mean tens of millions of people. So you might create a economic, you know, negative factor, sort of a negative cycle for some, especially some of the smaller sports that don't have long-term media deals locked in. 
you know, with the level of unemployment that, we're, you know, we've never seen anything like this before in our lifetimes, right? So this is a generational thing. So I don't think anybody's going to be safe. But on a relative basis, gaming in general is a significantly higher value proposition to the consumer on a cost basis, right? So most games that we're talking about, Fortnite, League of Legends, all these, they're free to play games. You don't have to pay anything to play these games. You have to have internet and a computer or a console. But if you have those things, you can play lots of free content for long periods of time. Even if you buy a game, like a, a big you know, franchise game like Call of Duty, for instance, where you have to pay $60 to a retailer to purchase it, you can play that game for years, right? So the, for the cost of you know, five movie tickets, which get you 10 hours of entertainment, you can, have, you can have 10 hours a day of entertainment for years off of one game. And so I think that that value proposition has always protected the underlying game publishing business in economic downturns. Certainly it won't be immune from it. There'll be some level of diminished demand or diminished purchasing power among consumers. But I think it's a significantly better value proposition than most other entertainment choices. So that's always been a, a big sort of protector of the industry. I think the advertising uh, downturn that's inevitably coming will be more impactful because the video game publishing world that has pushed into esports is really just on that upswing of commercializing that those properties and broadcasts. And so inevitably there'll be a downturn. What you may see though is some upward lift to that channel because generally speaking, you can buy you know time and rights in esports broadcasts much more cheaply than you could a big mass at scale event like an NFL game or a major league baseball game. And you're also in a more targeted environment. So your capability to better target your ad to individual user behavior is significantly increased. And obviously you're talking about a narrower, younger slice of a demographic pool and audience. So you're already sort of self-selected to a narrower, more targeted demographic group. So if there's not just a you know rapid pullback in ad spending, but a reassessment in a in a flight to kind of quality and, and return on investment, esports may be a, a net net beneficiary. But we'll see. I you know, you know, I think we're at 30 million unemployed in the US and, and growing and never having seen anything like this before. I think we just really don't know what the impact on consumer spending will be short term.